Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends in the Middle Eastern country of Qatar did recently. Welcome aboard, and you have my respect for living in the only country in the world, which begins with the letter Q. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so, just like not one, but two listeners did since our last episode, and here is what they wrote. Dwayne71816 says, The best one-man wrestling podcast out there, delivering some of the best commentary on the Attitude Era, either by himself or occasionally with a guest, Henry is funny and insightful. Well, thanks a lot, Dwayne, and based on your name, I'm just going to assume that you are, in fact, The Rock, and you listen to this podcast to be reminded of your glory days. Frankly, I can't say I blame you. And Jeffrey from Massachusetts writes, Love the podcast, very entertaining and full of nostalgia and fun facts. Love that you get a reply if you email the host as well. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. And for the record, Jeffrey actually is correct. If you email the show, you will certainly receive a response. He and I have gone back and forth a few times. So definitely send along an email if you want to chat about the Attitude Era or life in general, or if you just want to tell me that the show sucks, whatever you prefer. And finally, don't forget that we also have the Patreon page set up, patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast, where you can get lots of great stuff like bonus episodes, my 750-page Attitude Era Encyclopedia, and even the option to pick your own episode. All great choices there. On a quick random note before we officially begin here, Nitromania podcast host Adam and I recently attended WWE Night at Fenway Park, where the Boston Red Sox faced the Texas Rangers. Now, we were hoping WWE Night would mean that they had WWE stuff going on all throughout the night, but what it actually consisted of was Kofi Kingston throwing out the first pitch, which was pretty cool, actually, and he actually, uh, unfortunately, sailed the pitch very wide. But we also received bobbleheads of Red Sox second baseman Dustin Pedroia holding a WWE championship belt. So that was kind of nice, but we were also just a little bit disappointed that they didn't go all out throughout the night with wrestler stuff. I mean, come on, how do you not have every player walk up to a wrestler's entrance theme? I mean, that's just automatic. The Red Sox even have a player named Brock. It just makes too much sense. But basically, it was a fun time. The Red Sox won. But come on, come on, Fenway Park. You can do a little bit better on WWE night than just one pitch and some bobbleheads. Sprinkle that shit throughout the night is all we're saying. And finally, before we begin officially, I have to give one more huge thank you to William Rankin from the New Blood Rising podcast. He co-hosted our previous Raw vs. Nitro mega episode, which ended up being 
over five hours long. That's not an easy time commitment, especially for a podcast which isn't even your own. So again, a massive thank you to William for dedicating the time to come on this podcast. And if you haven't yet listened to episode number 55, I would highly recommend that you do, because in my opinion, it is the definitive breakdown of all the events which occurred on both shows on the night of January 4th, 1999. Don't let the length scare you off. I promise it's well worth your time. And of course, don't forget to check out William on the New Blood Rising podcast, where they're currently reviewing the WCW pay-per-views from the early 90s, eventually leading up to the arrival of Hulk Hogan in 1994. Great stuff from them, as always. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, January 11th, 1999, and we are live from the Compact Center in Houston, Texas. Interestingly, this is actually the six-year anniversary of Monday Night Raw, as the show officially debuted on January 11th, 1993, but funny enough, they don't actually mention that at any point during this show. I guess, in the Attitude Era, company milestones just aren't cool anymore. So yes, we are live from the Compact Center in Houston. Fun fact... As of 2005, this arena has actually been converted into a mega church, so chances are you probably won't be seeing any more WWE shows there since shirtless men rolling around with each other in their underwear is clearly in direct defiance of God's will. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include the 1989 Royal Rumble where Big John Studd won the Rumble match, WWE's Bad Blood 2003 pay-per-view where Triple H defeated Kevin Nash inside Hell in a Cell, and 10 episodes of Monday Night Raw, including an episode from just 10 weeks ago, which was covered in episode number 46 of this fine podcast. And so, we go straight into the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include, I love this show, Gangrel for President, Socko is my favorite wrestler, Stone Cold Hunt Me Down, Vince McMahon, you are an asshole. Houston's cool, but I'd rather be in China. Give me a title shot, tough guy. Vince's old lady made me this sign. Hunter Hearst Christ. We got four words for you. Show us your boobs. And on a related note, there was a large sign which simply said, Breasts. And, piggybacking on what William Rankin and I discussed last week, we get what I believe may be the first sign rebuking Tony Schiavone's comments on Nitro last week. Mick Foley put my ass in this seat, Tony. Great stuff there. We officially begin the show with D-Generation X's music playing, and all five members of DX proceed to stand at the top of the ramp. From there, the road dog gets on the mic, and, just like last week, he does his ladies and gentlemen routine, but... Instead of introducing the New Age Outlaws as the tag team champions of the world, he brings out the WWF heavyweight champion of the world, Mankind. And for those of you scoring at home, when Mick Foley comes out, we get the debut of his brand new theme song, and it is indeed the same theme song that he continues to use to this very day. Well, more or less anyway. I think the car crash sound effects at the beginning are actually a bit lengthier than his present-day version of the song, but I'll let you judge for yourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, D-Generation and the World Wrestling Federation proudly brings to you its WWF... No, no, no. Heavyweight champion of the world! 
becoming WWF champion and introduced tonight live in Houston by his adopted family, D-Generation X. So Mankind then heads to the ring where he also has a microphone. And you know what? Since this is Foley's first promo since winning the title, I feel like I should play it for you right here. And as a quick note, at the beginning of this clip, you'll hear Jerry Lawler say, Oh, look, there's The Rock. And that's because we see The Rock watching Foley's promo on a monitor backstage, not because Rock is actually in the arena. Well, not yet, anyway. But here is Mankind's celebratory promo. Well, I know one thing. It's about damn time I got some new entrance music. Oh, look, there's The Rock. Am I the only one that noticed... But on every frame of that video, well, I'm kind of getting my ass ticked, aren't I? Well, that's all right, because that's the story of my life. And everybody knows that Mick Foley takes a licking and keeps on ticking. You may take another one. Did you see how mad The Rock was? He's in Vince's office, too. So Vince and The Rock together. Now, last week was without a doubt the greatest moment in my 15-year career. But I didn't get there by myself. But I'd like to tell you just a little story about how for, I guess, 10 or 11 years, once a year I would call the World Wrestling Federation and I would offer my wrestling services, and they never returned my damn phone call. Can you blame Mr. McMahon? The word I got years later was that Mick Foley did not look like a star. Right, you're McMahon's worst nightmare. Sweet, quiet. So what I'd like to do is thank one person who knew that Mick Foley was a star, Kept after Vince McMahon, 12 years later, I made my debut in the World Wrestling Federation. That man's at home right now, and I'd like to say thank you, Jim Ross. Jim Ross is responsible for him. And get better soon, because I want to hear you call a Mankind Championship match. It's a good thing Jim Ross is not here tonight. I might punch him. Now... Upon further review of the videotape, I realized that I didn't exactly win that title on my own. So I'd also like to thank DX for watching my back. And there, there's another guy who helped out just a little bit too. I even believe he's from the state of Texas. And I know he's a little shy, but I hope he won't mind me saying, thank you, Stone Cold Steve Austin. And Stone Cold will be here tonight. And I guess, Stone Cold, that I owe you one. Because I realize the name of this pay-per-view, as the corporation calls it, is 
no chance in hell. I'm here to say, Steve-O, that as long as there's a mankind in the world, you've got one chance in hell. We're two weeks away from the Royal Rumble. What is he saying? I understand everyone believes that I achieved my dream last week, but there's one last dream in the life of Mick Foley, and that is the main event, the biggest wrestling show in the world, WrestleMania. As far as I'm concerned, well, a WrestleMania just is not a WrestleMania without Stone Cold Steve Austin in the main event. What a sucker. So publicly, I'm going to state that there is nothing I would like better than to wrestle Steve Austin at WrestleMania. What? That's if Austin wins the Rumble. Not because I don't like him, but because when I think about the possibilities, by God, it makes my skin break out. And I can guarantee that mankind and Stone Cold would tear the house down at WrestleMania. So there you have it. Mankind wants to put his WWF title on the line in the main event of WrestleMania 15 against Stone Cold Steve Austin. However, there are some people who are not in favor of that idea, and three of them then proceed to interrupt Foley's promo and stand at the top of the ramp. Vince McMahon, Shane McMahon, and the man who Foley beat to win the title last week, The Rock. Shane is the first to speak, and he announces some interesting matches for tonight. Not only will each member of DX be competing in singles competition, but there will also be what Shane calls a corporate Royal Rumble. And in that corporate Royal Rumble, every member of DX will go up against every member of the corporation, with that winner being given the number 30 spot in the Royal Rumble match. From there, The Rock takes the microphone, and he proceeds to belittle Foley, amusingly saying, quote, It looks like a big monkey walked down this ramp, got in the middle of the ring, took a crap, and out came mankind. Rock then attempts to make the case for a rematch, so let's hear what he has to say. Mankind, the least your unworthy ass can do is give The Rock what is rightfully his, and that's a shot at his WWF title, Royal Rumble 1999. It's a great idea. Well, you're right about a lot of things, Rock, uh, but uh, I've already beaten your ass twice. There's, uh, there's no third try here, Rock. You're simply not championship material. Uh-oh. Hold on, hold on, hold on a second. The Rock's not done. Not only will be a WWF title match, but it'll be a no-disqualification match as well. Well, Rock, uh... I, I smell what you're cooking. Doesn't smell all that good, you see. We've already been there. We've already done that. I'm going to have to take a pass on that one, Rock. All right, well, hold on. Hold on a second, because the Rock's not done. Not only will we be in no disqualification, no count out as well. Oh. Come on, man. Can you yell up? 
No disqualification. No count out. No thank you, Rock. <laughs> Not good enough for me. What's the Rock gonna have to do? All right, hold on a second, Mankind. The Rock is not done. Know your role and shut your mouth. The wheels are turning. Not only will we get a no DQ, no count out, but The Rock guarantees that not one member of Team Corporate will be around the ringside. The Rock, uh, I think I know what you ought to do, and that's... Uh, Check your own self into the SmackDown Hotel. <laughs> and walk your monkey ass down to the corner of Know Your Roll Boulevard and Jabroni Drive. Because you get no title shot. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, you want to act like a big shot, you want to be the great one, you want to be the most electrifying man in sports entertainment today, like The Rock. I'll tell you what, what you should do, mankind, is reach in there, take out that little sock, put it on your little hand, and stick it between your legs, because obviously there's nothing there. Go ahead and feel around and see what you feel then, big shot. Are you questioning my guts? My guts? Are you questioning mankind's testicular fortitude? I'll tell you what I will do, Rock. One day I will reach in and pull out Mr. Sacco. And I will stick him, but it will be between your legs, Rock. And I'll stick Mr. Sacco in a place where the sun does not shine. And I think I'll get a pretty damn good idea of what The Rock is cooking. Can't believe this. Well, this is ridiculous. Obviously, The Rock quits in trying to get your monkey ass out of I accept. What? You accept what, you idiot? I accept the match you just proposed, Rock. It's a stroke of brilliance. You and I at the Royal Rumble in an I quit match. What? And since you're so big on stipulations, well, I've added a couple, so let's run them down. There will be no disqualification, no count out, no corporate members at ringside, and let's see. No stopping the match for excessive blood loss. Because mark my words, Rock, at the Royal Rumble, there will be excessive blood loss. And I'm not gonna let you get off easy. There will be no knockouts. Because if there is, I'm gonna wake you back up to knock you back down again. And third, and look at me, Rock, look at me. It may be an I quit match, but I'm not going to use submission holds. You see, what I'm going to do very simply is beat the living hell out of you until you cannot take it anymore. And you look up at me with that ridiculous eyebrow. 
If you say the two magic words, Rock, I quit. Well, there you have it. Mankind will indeed put his WWF title on the line against The Rock at the Royal Rumble in an I Quit match. A match which, according to Foley, cannot be stopped due to excessive blood loss and, well, Let's just say that Mankind is not lying about that part. There will indeed be excessive blood loss in that match, for sure. However, to put the capper on the segment, Vince McMahon then makes the announcement that Foley may not even make it to the Royal Rumble as champion because, tonight, he will need to defend his title against Corporate Kane. Quite the big night we have ahead of us. A world title match and a Corporate Royal Rumble. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to seeing how this all plays out. And from there, we get a quick cut backstage where we see the arrival of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Remember that Stone Cold surprisingly returned to Raw last week after a four-week absence, so I'll certainly be interested to see what he has in store for us tonight. And after a commercial break, we go back to the arena for our first match of the evening, the New Age Outlaws, accompanied by China versus Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart, who are accompanied by Deborah. And whichever team wins this match earns a shot at the WWF Tag Team titles, which are currently held by Corporation members Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man. Before the match begins, we get a few clips. One is from earlier today where the Outlaws were playfully bickering amongst themselves about how the other one is susceptible to being distracted by Deborah. And, on a related note, the other clip we see is from an episode of Sunday Night Heat eight days ago. In a non-title match where Shamrock and Boss Man faced Owen and Jarrett, Deborah did indeed distract the Boss Man, and that allowed Jarrett to roll him up for the victory. And by the way, speaking of Sunday Night Heat, if you haven't heard about this little tidbit already, I have some fantastic news for you. They have now added the first 52 episodes of Sunday Night Heat onto the WWE Network. It took me a while to find them while I was searching, so I'll just help you out by letting you know they're in the section labeled Vault, and from there you can find them labeled as just Heat. Not Sunday Night Heat, just Heat, so there's a helpful tip for you there. But anyway, back to the Outlaws versus Jarrett and Owen. The first thing I'll note is that Rogue Dog and Jarrett were in the ring together for a while, and I couldn't help but to think back to those new generation days when the D-O-double-G was Jarrett's roadie. Yes, it was goofy, but I really did love to hate that tandem at the time when I was a youngster. Couldn't stand the roadie. Regarding Owen Hart, as soon as he enters the ring, the fans serenade him with loud nugget chants, and I know I've said it before, but I will say it again. Even though Owen is further down on the card, he still manages to get huge reactions from the crowd. Really cool to watch in retrospect. So for me, the highlight of the match was a spot where Road Dog and Jarrett simultaneously went to dropkick each other, which resulted in both of their groins colliding with each other in midair. I'll actually point out that Road Dog did a similar spot with one of the headbangers in a very early episode of this podcast, so apparently he really likes that midair dick to dick collision spot. I will admit, though, pretty funny to see. And that spot actually leads to both members of the teams making the tags to their partners, with Billy Gunn proceeding to clean house. Mr. Ass hits Owen with the rocker dropper, but instead of covering him right away, we can see Billy talking to referee Teddy Long, presumably trying to buy some time because Deborah was a bit late on her spot. But then, she does indeed get up on the ring apron, where she then proceeds to unbutton her suit coat, showing off her bra. Sure enough, this appears to distract Billy Gunn, but Mr. Ass then proceeds to tell her to suck it. Billy then tags back out to Road Dog, but while that's going on, China walks over to Deborah and tries to get in her face. Strangely, Deborah appears to start trying to seduce China, which causes Billy to come over and get between the two of them. 
However, meanwhile, back in the ring, Owen Hart hits Road Dog with some type of move. And I say that because the camera is not focusing on the action in the ring at all, but we do see that Owen ends up scoring the pinfall, meaning that your winners and the new number one contenders for the WWF Tag Team titles are Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart. And for the record, we do later get a replay which shows that Owen actually hit Road Dog with a spinning heel kick, but it was pretty sloppy camera work on the initial viewing. And then, as soon as the match ends, China shoves Deborah, knocking her down to the arena floor. But that doesn't prevent her from getting right back up and celebrating with her victorious teammates, so way to no-sell that one. China then heads into the ring to check on Road Dog and Billy, who appear to be bickering with each other. Are we witnessing the third tease in the past six months of the Outlaws potentially breaking up? I guess we'll see. Quite the refreshing storyline there. After a commercial break, we cut backstage where we see WWF official Tony Gurria and a group of police officers standing outside of a locker room door. When we zoom in on the door, we can see that there's a sign on it which says, Gilberg. So who is this Gilberg fellow? Well, when Gurria knocks on the door, we see a man emerge, and it is indeed WWF light heavyweight champion Dwayne Gill, who is doing a pretty hilarious impersonation of Bill Goldberg, sporting a drawn-on tattoo and making goofy faces. In another amusing touch, when he's walking to the ring, we can hear piped-in Gilberg chants, which is a clear reference to the fact that, on several occasions, WCW actually piped-in crowd chants of Goldberg to make it appear that he was more popular than he actually was. And if you want a clear example of that, look no further than the June 22, 1998 episode of Nitro, when Goldberg saves Kevin Green when he's being beaten down by the NWO. They are standing for one man, the phenomenon Goldberg. The man! Kevin Green and Goldberg will be a team! What a night! Listen to him! Listen to him! It's deafening! And there's nothing more we can say, I can tell you that. They're still chanting his name. Why don't we just... They'll be let... chanting it Winston or Orlando. Just a great tribute to the unbeaten U.S. champ. Let's let the chain of Goldberg take you out on Nitro. So, yes, when Gilberg is heading to the ring, Michael Cole makes reference to this by saying, quote, They're chanting Gilberg, but I'm looking at the thousands here in the Compact Center, and no one's on their feet, and no one's moving their mouth. And to continue the mockery even further, instead of getting a huge pyro shower like the real Goldberg does, Gilberg instead has the blue meanie, Bob Holly, and Scorpio holding up sparklers next to him. And instead of breathing in the pyro smoke and exhaling it like Goldberg does, Gilberg ends up choking on it and coughing. I've got to say, this is a quality parody we're seeing here. Kudos to Dwayne Gill. It certainly appears that when Tony Schiavone mocked the WWF for making Mick Foley their world champion last week, the company was all too eager to provide a response in their own unique way. Well played, good sirs. And by the way, I'm assuming the WWF must have spoiled Gilberg's debut on their website in advance, because quite a few fans in the crowd came to the arena with Gilberg-related signs. Either that, or we have quite a few time travelers in attendance tonight. So once he enters the ring, he grabs a mic and says, Gilberg doesn't want to know who's next. Gilberg wants to know who's first. And as it turns out, the first opponent will be Luna Vachon, who we last saw on Raw two weeks ago attacking Sable. 
So right off the bat, as you might expect, Gilbert goes for a spear, but Luna moves and he crashes into the ring post. However, Gilbert manages to regain the momentum, and he then lifts Luna up for a jackhammer, but then he drops her right on top of himself. From there, Luna goes to the top turnbuckle and hits a diving splash, and that's enough to pick up the one, the two, and the three. Luna Vachon is your winner, and it appears that Gilbert's streak has now begun at zero and one. However, as soon as that hilarity ends, the Sable superfan runs into the ring and tackles Luna from behind until security intervenes and pulls her away through the crowd. As a reminder, this quote-unquote fan is the woman who we will eventually come to know as Tori, T-O-R-I, but at this point, she's still an unnamed stalker who WWF security is apparently powerless to stop from running into the ring on numerous occasions across the country. Let's just say... I doubt we'd see them doing an angle like this in today's WWE. But as for Gilberg, I definitely recommend going back and checking out this segment, if only because Dwayne Gill does a fantastic job impersonating the real Goldberg. I know this shtick ends up getting a bit tired over time, but I remember marking out massively when they did this back in 1999. This was a point in time when the WWF wasn't really acknowledging WCW on camera very much, but... Since WCW came at them with a low blow last week, it appears the WWF felt compelled to respond with something, and this was awesome stuff. Well done, WWF. It was one of the rare occasions when you actually succeeded at doing comedy. From there, we cut to footage from last week on Raw, where the corporation beat the shit out of Shawn Michaels in the parking lot and smashed his face through the windshield of a car. We then got a clip from last night on Sunday Night Heat, which was in Shawn's hometown of San Antonio. And wouldn't you know it, Sean's mentor, Jose Lothario, was actually in the crowd, and at one point, Vince McMahon invited him into the ring. Jose told Vince, quote, I know you just suck, and then he shoved the chairman. This resulted in Vince, Shane, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe putting the boots to the 64-year-old Jose and leaving him laying. So perhaps HBK and his mentor can share a hospital room. After that, we cut back to Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler at the commentary table, where Cole tells us that, as a result of the corporation's beatdown, Shawn Michaels will be operated on tomorrow by Dr. Pablo Vasquez. And part of this is true. Dr. Vasquez will indeed be operating on HBK, but it's not from the kayfabe on-camera parking lot injury. Rather, this is when Shawn has that surgery on his back, stemming from the real-life injury he suffered during the casket match with The Undertaker back at Royal Rumble 1998. At this point, Dr. Vasquez had informed Sean that the rehab he had been doing was not working, so the only viable option at this point for him was surgery. Spoiler alert, we won't see Sean have any more matches during the run of this podcast, but let's just see that he ultimately ends up doing quite well for himself. He'll be alright, folks. He'll be alright. And after a commercial break, we cut back to Cole and Lawler at the commentary table, where we can see that they're being accosted by Dennis Knight. In case you need a reminder, Knight was kidnapped by the Acolytes two weeks ago on Raw, and then last week we saw him shackled up in a dungeon until Bradshaw and Farouk released him and threw him inside of what appeared to be an old-timey castle door as they stood guard outside of it. Tonight, he's wearing a torn-apart t-shirt and rambling on about the fact that he is here tonight, but Knight doesn't say who he is. From there, the Acolytes then come out from backstage and they tell him to come with them. Interestingly, Knight appears to be going along with them now, instead of being scared by them, so apparently, whatever he experienced last week appeared to completely change his mind. How will this play out? Oh, 
let's just say you'll want to stay tuned for later on in this episode, folks. It is something. So as soon as Dennis Knight and the Acolytes leave, Val Venus comes to the ring. He does one of his usual pre-match sexual innuendo promos, this time referencing the Houston Rockets, har har, but then he sets his sights on a lovely young woman in the front row. From there, Val proceeds to leave the ring and start gyrating in front of her, and, well, take a listen as to where this goes from there. Hey, what's Val doing? It looks like Val is going to engage in some extracurricular activity. Uh-oh, he spotted, he spotted something he likes at ringside. Oh, I don't blame him. I think she likes him back. So, yes, much like last summer when Val randomly harassed a woman who ended up being Yamaguchi-san's wife, he once again has bad luck because this time around, it turns out he was hitting on a woman who turns out to be Ken Shamrock's sister. Shamrock then proceeds to extract revenge by smacking Val's head into one of the ring posts, throwing him face-first into the steel steps, and then beating on him in front of his sister on the arena floor. Eventually, Shamrock starts heading backstage, but then... His recent rival, Billy Gunn, comes to the ring. Billy grabs a mic and says that he doesn't know if Shamrock's sister liked it when Val was hitting on her, but he knows that she's going to like this. And then, true to his nickname, Mr. Ass proceeds to pull down his tights and moon Sister Shamrock. So, of course, Kenny then runs down to the ring and attacks Billy Gunn. Val Venus then returns to the fray and starts beating on Shamrock, so the big boss man comes to the ring to provide some backup for his tag team partner. Eventually, a bunch of referees managed to separate all four men, and it certainly looked like they were setting up a tag team match. But instead, Shamrock grabs a mic and tells Billy Gunn that he wants to settle the score, so he's going to put his Intercontinental title on the line against Mr. Ass at the Royal Rumble. Billy appears to accept, so it seems that we have us another match scheduled for the pay-per-view. Shamrock then rolls outside the ring and warns his sister to stay away from Val, and, unfortunately... It appears that she's having a hard time preventing herself from giggling at all the craziness she just witnessed. Come on, Sister Shamrock, you had one job. Take the shit seriously. Yeesh. After that, we cut backstage where we see WWF champion Mankind and Stone Cold Steve Austin having some friendly banter. Perhaps they're discussing their potential WrestleMania 15 main event against each other? I'm certainly looking forward to that one. Hope it happens. And after a commercial break, we go back to the arena where it's time for our next match, and it is for the WWF European Championship, Champion X-Pac versus Challenger Al Snow, who does not have head with him, despite what his on-screen graphic says. 
and before the match begins, we get a flashback to last night on Sunday Night Heat. While Al Snow was facing Christian, randomly, of all people, Goldust came down to ringside and stole head. Al Snow's job squad teammate, the Blue Meanie, then chased after Goldust and tried to get it back, but, fittingly, Goldust smacked Meanie in the head with head, so his efforts were unsuccessful. And tonight, by the way, is the second straight week that Al Snow has received a title shot. Last week, he faced the Road Dog for the Hardcore Championship and lost, and this week, somehow, he has apparently moved up in the ranks to get a shot at Xbox European title. I think someone needs to have a word with the championship committee. However, this was indeed a fun little three-minute match. The finish came when X-Pac hit Al with his Bronco Buster finisher in the corner, and then the referee started to admonish X-Pac. While that was going on, Goldust ran out from backstage and smacked Al in the face with Head, and, in a nice little touch, Head is now painted with Goldust's signature face paint. So from there, X-Pac hit Al with the X-Factor, and that was enough to secure the victory. Your winner and still WWF European champion, X-Pac. And then, literally as soon as the three count is registered, Al Snow just gets right up and chases after Goldust. I repeat, Al just got smacked in the face with head and hit with X-Pac's finisher, and he completely abandons any sort of selling immediately. And by the way, this isn't the first time we've seen Al do this. If you flash back to the November 9th, 1998 episode of Raw, covered in episode number 47 of this fine podcast, Al does the exact same thing after he loses to Tiger Ali Singh. Takes the pin and gets right back up as though nothing happened. Surprisingly, I don't remember him teaching that when he ended up being a coach on Tough Enough. But anyway, Al catches up to Goldust in the aisle, but once again, Goldust wallops him in the face with head. Goldust then starts walking backstage as Al sluggishly crawls up the ramp after him. Oh hey, I guess he does remember how to sell after all. Way to go. Way to go. We then cut backstage where Vince McMahon is talking with Kane as Patterson, Briscoe, and Shane stand nearby. We don't actually hear him say it, but apparently Kane has informed Vince that he wants to go it alone in his title match against Mankind tonight with no help from the corporation. Vince says that he damn well better win the title, and he also better beat Mick Foley to a bloody pulp when he does it. And that provides a fitting segue because, after a quick commercial break, it is now time for the WWF Championship match. Champion Mankind versus Challenger Kane, who does indeed come to the ring all by himself. At the start of the match, Kane jumps Mankind outside the ring, and he grabs the steel stairs to use against Foley. However, Mankind then got the advantage and started beating on Kane with them, which I thought might cause a disqualification, but no, referee Earl Hebner was apparently completely fine with it. Later on in the match, we got an incredibly painful-looking spot, which I don't think I've ever seen attempted before, or thankfully since. Mankind and Kane were outside the ring, and Foley attempted to give Kane a pile driver. Instead, Kane managed to reverse it by picking Mankind up into what I can best refer to as the Alabama slam position. However, instead of grabbing Foley's feet and throwing him to the ground, Kane blindly fell backwards, smacking Mankind back first into the other set of steel stairs. I mean, at this point, it just seems like Mick Foley is trying to come up with innovative ways of potentially crippling himself. Unreal. However, back in the ring, Mankind did manage to recover and put Mr. Sacco on Kane. Or, well, at least they tried to make it seem that way. I have no idea how he could possibly fit the sock through that tiny slit in Kane's mask, but sure. Foley then went around Kane's back and tried to clamp the sock on him from behind, but, in a pretty clever spot, 
Cain then picked mankind up and transitioned him into tombstone position. And sure enough, Cain then did indeed nail mankind with a tombstone right in the center of the ring. Cain went for the cover, and then, well, let's pick it up from there. Mankind's out! We can have a new champion right here! Cain saved from Sako by that mask! That makes all the years of disfigurement worth wearing that mask right there! And Cain is up, and mankind is out! Okay, so what you heard there was Kane attempting to pin Mankind to win the title, but instead, The Rock showed up and simply pushed Kane off of Foley, which caused referee Earl Hebner to call for the disqualification. From there, The Rock exited the ring, grabbed a chair, and proceeded to deliver an incredibly sick chair shot to Mankind, and not one, not two, but three incredibly sick chair shots to Kane, including one where Kane was on the ground doing his zombie recovery routine, and Rock nailed him in the head while he was attempting to sit up. Fucking ouch. And by the way, if you want to see The Rock deliver even more disgusting chair shots to someone's skull, well, let's just say you should stay tuned in the coming weeks. And as you heard from there, Stone Cold Steve Austin arrived on the scene. Rock was still holding the chair, so he motioned for Austin to come join him in the ring, but then Mankind recovered and stole the chair from Rock, so the People's Champion scampered away. With Kane still laid out from the chair shots, Stone Cold then joined Mankind in the ring. In a showing of solidarity, Foley handed the chair to Austin, and Stone Cold responded by hitting Mankind with a stunner. Kane then recovered and got to his feet, so Austin hit him with a stunner as well, while The Rock looked on from the top of the ramp. And that was how this portion of the show came to a close. Now... This was great stuff, but with that being said, I do have one major complaint about this segment, and that would be how Mankind was portrayed. He's your new WWF champion, but he was just about to lose his title cleanly to Kane, and only kept it because The Rock interfered, and then he takes a stunner from Stone Cold for good measure, which just seemed completely unnecessary. 
Quite frankly, he kind of looked like a chump here, and I don't think that's how you should be portraying a guy one week removed from one of the best world title victories in wrestling history. In fact, if you just watch this segment completely out of context, you'd probably think they're setting up Austin versus Rock at the Royal Rumble as opposed to Mankind versus Rock. Very poor booking of Mick Foley, if you ask me, but it probably gives you an indication of just how unlikely it is that Mankind will be holding the WWF title for any extended length of time. And after a quick commercial break, we go backstage where Vince McMahon is asking The Rock what he was thinking, costing Kane the championship. Rock tells him that he was not going to let, quote, that big, red, retarded Kane take his title before he can take it from Mankind first at the Royal Rumble. Unlike the present day, the WWF was clearly not partnering with the Special Olympics back in 1999. Yikes. We then go back to the arena for our next match, Triple H accompanied by China versus Edge, to which I say, holy shit, it's Triple H versus Edge. And I actually had to stop and think for a moment because I don't recall these guys ever having much of a singles feud with each other. The first thing that came to mind was 2006-2007 when DX feuded with Rated RKO, but that was about it. So I went back and checked, and in fact, Triple H and Edge only have one singles match against each other on pay-per-view, Great American Bash 2008, where, as you could probably guess, Triple H picked up the victory. Hunter was on Raw for most of his career while Edge was on SmackDown, so they never really ended up having a long, drawn-out rivalry. Very interesting to think about in retrospect, actually. But as for this Triple H Edge encounter, it was a pretty solid three-minute match, and it really made me wish they were given more time, now that I realize that we never really get a singles feud between them. The finish came when Edge went for a swinging neckbreaker, but Triple H grabbed Edge's arms and perfectly rotated him right into position for the pedigree. Hunter then hit Edge with his finisher, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match, Triple H. However, as soon as referee Jimmy Corderas made the three count, Edge's brood stablemates Gangrel and Christian arrived on the scene and started beating the crap out of Triple H. Michael Cole informed us that the rest of DX was running to the ring to help out, but we didn't see them because the lights then went out, and when they came back on, the road dog was covered in blood. Yes, that's right, your WWF Hardcore Champion is now the newest recipient of one of the brood's bloodbaths. And we then cut to a commercial as Road Dog stood around looking puzzled. Personally, I was hoping that Triple H was going to be the one to get the bloodbath, but maybe that's just wishful thinking. Also, in case you needed a reminder that Monday Night Raw was completely chaotic and unpredictable at this time, well, now you have it. And after a commercial break, holy shit, speaking of unpredictability, folks, get ready for this doozy of a segment. When we come back from break, we can hear that familiar chanting of the druids, and at the top of the ramp, we see a throne in the shape of the Undertaker's symbol with fire burning on each arm of it. And off to the left side of the throne, the acolytes are standing next to a table where a purple robe-wearing Dennis Knight is laying, seemingly unconscious. Some druids then emerge from backstage, followed by Paul Bearer, and yes, after that, we see that the Undertaker has now returned after a four-week absence. The last time we saw him was at Rock Bottom, when Steve Austin buried him alive, and before that, the last time he was on Raw was five weeks ago on December 7th, when he quote-unquote crucified Austin. I will note that when The Undertaker's music plays, it appears that he has now gone back to his older theme that he used for many years, as opposed to the one he had been using this past fall with the guitars and the choir chanting. 
He's wearing a black hooded robe, which partially obscures his face, but we can see that he has now grown out his goatee in the time frame where he's been off TV. Now, what kind of ruins this segment from the beginning is that we then get a voiceover from The Undertaker, and we can see that he is unsuccessfully trying to mouth along with the words which are being piped in while he's sitting there on his throne. Yes, that's right. The Undertaker is actually lip-syncing a promo. Just about 45 minutes after they mocked Goldberg for having his chants piped in over the loudspeakers, they're piping in an Undertaker promo over the loudspeakers. If I had to guess, I'd assume that Vince Russo wrote this massive speech for him, and Taker couldn't memorize the whole thing, but Russo wanted every word of this brilliance to go on TV, so they came up with the idea to record it in advance. Again, that's just my guess, but I feel pretty confident that I'm right. And I'll play the promo for you here so you can judge for yourself how effective it is. One quick thing to mention about the very first part of this clip. It sounds like I'm joining the speech while it's already in progress, but that's actually the WWF's error. I think they must have had the audio level down low at the start, so it actually cuts off the first part of what Taker says. So clearly, we're off to a good start. But okay, here is the new look Undertaker's message for the World Wrestling Federation. in a grave as if it would be my final resting place, filling it with the earth's rotting soil. They tried to destroy me, wishing I would just go away. But what is it? What have they really done? The simple minds of mortal men, they've sent me back to the place that is my origin. Destroy me. The more they try, the more powerful I've become. And now, I've risen from my earthy grave. And now I will slay the ones I once saved. The reckoning is upon us. The day that the Ministry of Darkness seizes the land. Destroys all that you hold dear. Make playthings of your heroes. And devour your innocence. The plague of darkness is coming, an all-encompassing evil for which there is no escape, no mercy, no hope. It's called the future. And in the future, I will look down upon thee, and I will decide whether you're an agent of darkness, or are you just mere kindling for my fires? The power of darkness shall be offered only to a chosen few. And those that resist the temptations of my ministry, pain becomes synonymous with punishment. Embrace the darkness and relish in the unearthly delights that pain has to offer. Resist, and there are no limits to the torment you subject yourself to. Don't fight it. It will tear your soul apart. So let my servants be few and secret. They shall rule the many and the known. For I am the reaper of men, the chaser of souls, the weaver of nightmares. I am the heart of darkness. I am now and ever will be the purity of evil. The hell you were threatened with as a child is no longer an option 
It is a reality. A living, breathing reality. And you all are right in the middle of it. Yes, hell has relocated to Earth. From there, the Undertaker stands up from his throne and walks over to the table where Dennis Knight is laying. And then, well, this is where things proceed to go completely bonkers. I want to stress that everything I'm about to tell you actually happens, so buckle up for this one. Paul Bearer proceeds to hand the Undertaker a dagger, which Taker then uses to slit his own wrist. Yes, you heard that correctly. Once the blood starts flowing, Taker grabs a goblet, which he then fills with his own dripping blood. From there, he tells Dennis Knight that he no longer possesses that name, but rather, from this moment on, he will now be known as Midian. Taker then has Midian sit up, and he makes him drink from the Goblet of Blood, which is easily my least favorite Harry Potter novel. Midian then convulses before seemingly going back to being unconscious, and from there, Taker then unzips Midian's purple robe. And as if they couldn't push things any farther, Taker uses the dagger to carve his symbol into Midian's chest. Good lord. Now, I'm going to go ahead and state the obvious here. The Undertaker is not really doing any of this crazy stuff. I'm pretty sure that the dagger is actually just a prop that can dispense fake blood. And, well, the fans are clearly not buying into it either, because you can hear them loudly chanting bullshit in the background. From this moment on, you are no longer... Dennis Knight, you are Midian. And then, to finish things off, the Undertaker walks back over near his throne and says, quote, Now you will know why you are afraid of the dark, and you will learn why. But unfortunately, before he can finish what he was saying, a lightning bolt loudly strikes a nearby Undertaker symbol, causing it to catch on fire. It appears that they queued up the pyro a little too early, so it drowned out Taker telling us what exactly we need to learn from him. Hopefully, it wasn't too important. And to put the capper on this segment, smoke then starts pouring out from under the table Midian is laying on, with Michael Cole informing us that he's floating, which is not at all happening. I'm pretty sure there's a story out there that Cole knew in advance they were planning on doing a levitation trick at the end of the segment here, but what he didn't hear about was how they actually abandoned the levitation idea before they did the segment live, so Cole called it as though it was still going to happen. Good times. So yes, that whole segment was a thing which actually occurred. Now, big picture, there is some important stuff going on here. For starters, this is the first time we've actually seen anyone else become a member of the Ministry of Darkness. The Undertaker first mentioned the Ministry way back on October 19th, almost three months ago, but since then, the only members of the faction have been Taker and Paul Bearer. But as of tonight, they have now added the Acolytes and Dennis Knight, or uh, I guess I should say Midian. And for the record, I do think there are some positives to take away here. In particular, I love the fact they're amping up the Undertaker's character to a whole new level of evil. That's good stuff. He's been around for more than eight years at this point, so it's never a bad idea to try and freshen a guy up to prevent him from becoming stale. 
Also, Taker does look pretty damn badass in his new outfit, and honestly, his throne looked pretty cool too, and it kind of bums me out because I don't think we get to see much more of that throne, which is a shame because they probably spent quite a bit of cash on it. But now, for the negative part. Even in the cartoony world of professional wrestling, this was a whole other level. As I just mentioned, it's great to make The Undertaker more evil, but they went from point A to point Z so quickly and basically turned him into Satan. I suppose your mileage may vary as to whether you think this segment was enjoyably campy or just incredibly stupid and cringeworthy, but I'd love to hear your takes on it. I will say, though, I do find this segment very fitting because, in my recollection, 1999 was the year the WWF really started to ramp things up and go completely overboard with the insane storylines. So here we are, only two weeks into the year, and they give us one of the most batshit crazy moments you're ever likely to see on a wrestling show. Needless to say... It's going to be a fun year, folks. And so, how can you follow up a segment which contains borderline Satan worship? Why, with a segment about a miscarriage, of course. Because when we come back from commercial, D'Lo Brown is walking to the ring, and he's accompanied by Terry Runnels and Jacqueline. Yes, that's right. PMS are walking side by side with D'Lo, despite what happened last week. And in case you need a reminder, we get footage from the previous episode of Raw where the pregnant Terry Runnels got up on the ring apron during D'Lo's match with Edge, and D'Lo then started walking toward her, which resulted in Terry accidentally tripping and falling to the floor. And when we come back live to tonight's episode of Raw, well, this is a direct quote from Michael Cole. Quote, Terry tells us this week that she's okay, but she also told us, Terry told us that she lost her baby. Yep, they really went there, all right, as if this episode of Raw needed to get any more grim. So D'Lo grabs a microphone and says that because he feels responsible for what happened, he's willing to do whatever PMS asks him to do, and he specifically suggests doing Terry's laundry or driving her around. So for those of you at home who are wondering about some of the best ways to make it up to a woman if you indirectly cause her to have a miscarriage, well, apparently if you do some menial tasks for her, then I guess you can call it even. However, D'Lo then says that he cannot do what Terry is asking him to do tonight because it's wrong. Terry grabs the mic and says he has to do it if he calls himself a man of his word, so D'Lo agrees. And from there, Mark Henry emerges from backstage. Yes, it appears that Terry is forcing D'Lo to fight his best friend. D'Lo and Mark go face-to-face, but Mark also appears unwilling to fight his pal, so Sexual Chocolate turns his back on D'Lo and goes to leave the ring. And that provides an opening for Jacqueline, who proceeds to shove D'Lo into Mark. Sexual Chocolate, thinking that D'Lo attacked him from behind, then turns around and both men start getting into a shoving match until Terry nails Mark Henry with a low blow. And then, because PMS has once again messed with her man, China comes out from backstage and she's once again accompanied by her friend Sammy. Terry runs away, but Jacqueline gets in China's face, so China shoves her to the ground, and yes, once again, Jacqueline completely falls out of her top. So if you want to see Jackie's bare breasts uncensored on the WWE Network, well folks, you're in luck. From there, China and Sammy then help the limping Mark Henry backstage as D'Lo stands in the ring, looking confused. And after a commercial break, we see China, Sammy, and Mark Henry together in a dressing room backstage. China offers to go get Mark a drink of water, and she leaves Sammy alone with sexual chocolate. What happens from there? Well, 
stay tuned for the next episode because uh, it certainly features a memorable moment, to say the least. We then go back to Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler at the commentary position, and Cole then proceeds to introduce us to another montage of Vince McMahon training for the Royal Rumble match with Shane acting as his coach. As a reminder, last week before he was murdered in the parking lot, Commissioner Shawn Michaels changed Vince's number in the Rumble from number 30 to number 2, so it would appear that he is certainly going to need quite a bit of training indeed. And Attitude Era fans will likely remember this montage because it's the one where Shane is training Vince in the middle of a massive snowstorm. Not only is Vince jogging and lifting heavy equipment in the snow, but at one point, Shane actually tells him to chase around a chicken. And they have to do some clever editing here because when they actually filmed this segment, the chicken refused to run around and just sat down in the snow. So what you see on Raw is Vince running toward the camera as though we were watching from the chicken's perspective. Pretty amusing. And then, after Vince is done running around, Shane takes him to a steakhouse at the end of the day. Vince thinks he's going to be having a nice meal, but instead, Shane takes him to the freezer so he can punch some hanging pieces of meat as though he were Rocky Balboa. And yes, I'll go ahead and play the whole segment for you here, so enjoy. Let's go! I bet you want this! Austin, baby, Austin! That's it, that's it! Billy Mac! Billy Mac's the man! Number two! Number two! Number two! <sighs> well, that's it, put your hood back on, we we'll want you to catch cold out here. You do. I'm not training for the Royal Rumble. You're number two. Number two, you know what that means? Come on, pick up the pace. Pick up the pace. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Come on, move it up. Royal Rumble. Rumble. You're number two. Endurance is the key. Text me if you can. Speed up, driver. Speed up. Speed up. Speed up. Yeah, baby. Come on. Yeah. This is the moment of truth. This is the stupidest one of them all. No, it's not. I'm the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. That's okay. You're going to chase this is, how, this is how you used to do it. This is uh, how you build speed. You will be Austin. You'll be faster than Austin. You need greasy, fast speed. You need to be grease light. Grease light. Catch that chicken. That's it. That's it. That's it. Get that chicken. Get the chicken. Come on, that's it. Get it. Make the Colonel proud, baby. How bad do you want this? Bad. How bad? How bad? Real bad. I can't hear you. It is cold. Have you come through to a good state? Right after training. I knew you'd come through. Something like that. You're crossing me up again, aren't you, huh? I'm not crossing. Well, so you think this is a setup? You think that's a freaking movie or something? You're gonna pay. After all this is over, you're gonna pay. Now open the damn door. Hey, Here's your first one. Here you go, big boy. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. Let's go. Hit it. Hit it. That's it. Beautiful. Boom. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. You want Austin. Come on. You own Austin. You own Austin. Here it comes. By the Good shot, good shot. Austin doesn't stand a chance. Yeah, that's it. Own him. Make it bleed, baby. That's it. Tenderize Austin's face. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Come on, you're not so sore. That's too bad. What do you think Austin's going to do to you? Austin 360, nothing. He is toast. He is toast. Good night, baby. Forget about And now it is time for our main event of the evening, the first ever Corporate Royal Rumble, pitting members of the corporation against members of D-Generation X, with the winner earning the right to enter at number 30 in the 1999 Royal Rumble match. The first man to enter is Ken Shamrock, with Billy Gunn then entering at number 2, which is fitting since these two have had quite the rivalry over the past few weeks, including earlier tonight when Mr. Ass mooned Shamrock's sister. Another important thing to note is that trainer extraordinaire Shane McMahon accompanies Shamrock to the ring, and he then goes over and joins the commentary team. And unlike his early commentary days on Sunday Night Heat, since Shane is now a heel, this time he will be intentionally annoying. 
So we start off with Shamrock and Billy Gunn. When Billy jumps up on the apron and attempts to enter the ring, Shamrock immediately kicks him down to the floor, and then Shamrock proves that he may be the dumbest man in wrestling history. Why? Because as soon as the bell rings, Shamrock gets a running start and launches himself over the top rope onto Billy Gunn on the floor. So yes, we are five seconds into the match, and Shamrock has officially eliminated himself. I suppose his nickname isn't the world's smartest man for a reason. However, from there, Shamrock does proceed to beat the crap out of Mr. Ass for the next minute, eventually rolling him into the ring before referees force Shamrock to leave. And then we get the countdown signaling the arrival of the third participant in the match, and that person is Shamrock's tag team partner, the Big Boss Man. So Boss Man works over Billy for another minute until the next participant arrives. Amusingly, they actually play the New Age Outlaws theme music, and the crowd starts chanting, Oh, you didn't know? But it turns out that the production team fucked up because, in actuality, Test is the next entrant. Whoopsie. And funny enough, we can see that Test is actually wearing a t-shirt that says Outlaw on it for some reason, so clearly he must really want to be a part of the group. But anyway, despite the corporation's two-on-one advantage, they don't manage to eliminate Mr. Ass, and 60 seconds later, we get the arrival of our next participant, X-Pac. I would have thought for sure that Road Dog would be the next man out since they accidentally played his theme when Test came out, but no, it's your reigning WWF European champion. So the odds were evened up at two apiece, but only for a few seconds because Billy Gunn then attempted to Irish whip Test off the ropes, but he blocked it and whipped Billy instead. Test then went for a hip toss, but Billy blocked it and went for one of his own. However, Test then blocked that attempt, and he hip-tossed Mr. Ass right over the top rope for the elimination. It looked awesome, and you could hear the crowd loudly react to it as well. Definitely a great way to make Test look strong early on in his WWF career. With X-Pac attempting to fend off Test and the Big Boss Man, we then got our next countdown, and yes, this time it actually is the Road Dog's turn to enter, and we can see that he still has some blood on his hands from the bloodbath the Brood gave him earlier on tonight. So Road Dog squares off with Test, while Boss Man squares off with X-Pac, until we get our next countdown, at which point, the lights go out. Yes, the next man to enter is, indeed, Corporate Kane. And sure enough, Kane quickly tosses out the road dog, leaving X-Pac all by himself in the ring with Kane, Test, and the boss man. However, Pac survives the three-on-one disadvantage long enough for the next man to enter, Triple H. Kane quickly grabs Hunter and holds his arms behind his back so Test can hit him with a clothesline. But of course, Triple H escapes at the last second, causing Test to accidentally hit Kane. The angry Big Red Machine then grabs Test by the throat and tosses his own corporate team member over the top rope. Hunter and X-Pac then immediately take advantage by clotheslining Kane right over the top rope as well, and only a few seconds later, Bossman quickly sneaks up on X-Pac and dumps him, so it appears that Bossman and Triple H are the last two people left in the corporate rumble. So Hunter and Bossman brawl for a bit in the ring until, out of nowhere, we don't get another countdown, but we do get a horn signaling the arrival of another participant, and that person is Vince McMahon, who's accompanied to the ring by Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. With Bossman now holding Triple H against the ropes and trying to eliminate him, Vince enters the ring and quickly throws both men out from behind. So yes, just like that, it appears that Mr. McMahon has now won the match and regained the number 30 spot in the Royal Rumble match. 
Patterson then lifts Vince's hand in the air in victory, and the chairman then hilariously proceeds to tear off his black tank top as though he were Hulk Hogan. However, it appears that Vince may have celebrated a bit too early. So as you heard there, China attempted to enter the corporate rumble, but Patterson and Briscoe initially tried to prevent her from doing so. She then knocked both of them to the ground, at which point, Stone Cold Steve Austin emerged from backstage once again. Austin walked towards the ring, which distracted Vince, and that allowed China to sneak into the ring behind Mr. McMahon and dump him over the top rope. And by the way, when Vince gets thrown over the top, you can see that he accidentally gets his chin caught under the bottom rope, causing his head to snap back before he hits the floor. It looked pretty damn brutal, and if you listen closely during that clip I just played, when that happens to Vince, you can actually hear Shane say, Jesus, on commentary. I'm assuming he must have thought that his own father may have just broken his neck. Clearly, Shane's training hasn't quite covered everything just yet. But the most important point here is that the winner of the Corporate Rumble and the person who will now officially enter at number 30 in the Royal Rumble match itself in two weeks is China. This would make China the first woman to ever enter a Royal Rumble match, and it certainly puts her in a strong position to win the whole damn thing. How will that play out? I guess we shall see in two weeks. But we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up.
Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cats that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more homes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Come on, Not a stone cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. The WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap As William Rankin and I detailed extensively on the last episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, last week's massive battle which featured Mankind's title victory going head-to-head against the finger poke of doom resulted in an easy victory for Raw, 5.76 to 4.96. This week, Raw's rating actually dropped while Nitro surprisingly ticked up slightly, but it was still an easy win for the WWF, 5.5 to 4.99. However, it should also be noted that this week's episode of Sunday Night Heat also got a huge boost from Mankind's title win and finished with a 4.9. So yes, Sunday Night Heat got almost the same rating as this week's Nitro. That's when you know the WWF is firing on all cylinders. But for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching on tonight's episode of Nitro, one week removed from the finger poke of doom. Ernest the Cat Miller defeated Perry Saturn by disqualification. Kaz Hayashi defeated Rey Mysterio, also via disqualification. Booker T defeated Lenny Lane. Scott Steiner defeated Diamond Dallas Page to retain his world television title. Scott Hall defeated Bam Bam Bigelow. Ric Flair defeated Kurt Hennig via disqualification. And, in your main event, the man who laid down for Hulk Hogan last week, Kevin Nash, defeated the Giant in what turns out to be Giant's very last match in a WCW ring. Hmm. In addition to that, we also got a promo from Hulk Hogan where he was wearing baggy black Jenko jeans for some reason, so check that out if you get a chance. And we had interim WCW president Ric Flair forcing Eric Bischoff to be part of the ring crew where he then had to take orders from noted kielbasa enthusiast Klondike Bill. And speaking of Flair and Bischoff, we also got a pre-taped segment from a few days prior where Bischoff went to WCW headquarters to meet with Flair only to find that his key card no longer worked His secretary was gone, and he was now being asked to sign in as though he was a visitor. Take a quick listen. Please sign in. Let's sign in anything. Please help me out with this. Where's Amy? Who are you? Amy's not here. Please have a seat. Who are you? Mr. Flair, be with you momentarily, sir. Get out of my way. Mr. Bischoff. Do you know who I am? No, sir. You know my name? Sir, Mr. Bischoff. That's right. Now, just in case you missed that part at the end, the security guard refers to him as Mr. Bischoff, followed immediately by Eric asking, Do you know who I am? To which the security guy responds, No, sir. I repeat, this was a pre-taped segment, which means they could have easily filmed another take where the security guy didn't, you know, completely contradict himself. WCW, ladies and gentlemen. And in further Nitro happenings, just 10 days removed from Eddie Guerrero injuring himself in a horrendous car crash, the LWO was officially disbanded. So presumably going forward, this means that WCW's talented crop of Mexican wrestlers will be receiving even less television time than before. Good to know. If all that sounds like an episode of Nitro you'd want to check out, by all means, go right ahead. But I think this one might have been even more of a stinker than last week's show, folks, and that's saying something. We're only two episodes into 1999, and, well, it's pretty clear this is going to be a rough year for WCW. And on that note, let's go to 
the Raw synopsis. Obviously, I don't think this episode of Raw topped last week's, but with that being said, still a very good show. The Mankind Rock promo duel was a great way to kick things off. The corporate rumble was a lot of fun. Shane McMahon training with Vince in the snow is a classic moment. And honestly, I think that Gilbert debut still stands the test of time 19 years later. I could be wrong, but I feel like we never actually get the Gilbert character if WCW hadn't mocked Mick Foley's title win one week prior, so I guess we can say that's one positive we can extrapolate from Tony Schiavone being a douchebag. As for the bad parts of Raw, well, let's stay on the topic of Mick Foley. His opening promo with The Rock was great, but everything after that kinda made him look pathetic. He was going to cleanly lose his WWF title to Kane, but The Rock saved his ass at the last second, and then he looked like a gullible moron when he tried to befriend Stone Cold Steve Austin, only to get a stunner for his troubles. In the span of about two minutes, Mick Foley got beaten down by Kane, The Rock, and Stone Cold. Great way to make your new champion look strong, huh? Continuing on with the negatives, I think I certainly need to mention the fact that Terry Runnels is using her miscarriage as an excuse to manipulate D'Lo Brown, and there's a sentence I never thought I'd have to utter, but, well, that's where we are with that angle at this particular moment. And the fact that that particular promo ends up segueing into a moment where Mark Henry gets to be alone with Sammy, well, let's just say that's quite a bit of wrestle crap there, in my humble opinion. And, of course, the segment with The Undertaker certainly deserves a special mention. Is it bad? Again, in this humble podcast host's opinion, yes, it is quite bad. However, with that being said, I was still captivated by it. I hadn't watched the whole thing since it initially aired back in 1999, but it is definitely rewatchable from a so-bad-it's-good perspective. Just to repeat, The Undertaker slit his wrist, made Dennis Knight drink his blood, and then he carved a symbol into Knight's chest. That all happened on a wrestling show, and many people thought it was a good idea. We've seen a lot of crazy shit in the WWE over the years, but for sheer lunacy, I'd imagine that segment might top anything else they've ever done. Seriously, try to think of a more bizarre scene in wrestling history, because I'm having trouble thinking of one. But also, as I said before, if you disagree with me and think it was awesome, by all means, send me an email or a tweet and let me know why I'm an idiot who just doesn't get it. I'm willing to listen. But all in all, if I had to say whether or not I would recommend this episode of Raw, despite the questionable parts, I would definitely give it a thumbs up. It may actually be in the running for the darkest episode of Raw of all time, since it gave us a satanic ritual, a bloodbath, and the confirmation that Terry Runnels did indeed suffer a miscarriage, but if you're fine with all that bleakness washing over you as though you're watching a David Fincher film, then you should give this episode a look. Just be prepared to take a shower afterwards. And before we come to a close, I'm going to share a few quick notes from the issue of the Wrestling Observer, which covered the week of this show. Dave Meltzer clarifies that the reason Stone Cold was off TV for a while in December was not just because he was filming an episode of Nash Bridges, but also because he had been suffering from an abdominal tear. Funny enough, Austin wasn't even initially supposed to be at Raw last week because he was still recovering from the injury, but they had flown him up to Stamford for a commercial shoot and decided to use him in Worcester during the Mankind Rock title match, and sweet Jesus, what a great decision that turned out to be. Also, Meltzer reports that Mick Foley is currently telling people backstage that he is intent on making his I Quit match with The Rock, quote, the match of a lifetime. Meltzer notes that this makes him worried, since the last time Foley was talking about making a match so memorable was back at King of the Ring 1998 when he almost killed himself. And well, Dave, let's just say, you were right to be worried about that I Quit match, but we'll get to that in a couple weeks. So on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. 
As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, just like our friends Dwayne and Jeffrey did, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. And of course, don't forget patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast, where you can get all sorts of bonus content. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so, as promised, I will now leave you with the outtakes from the Vince and Shane training montage from this episode of Raw, where the chicken refuses to run around in the snow. And in case you want to watch these actual outtakes for yourself, you can find them in Jerry Springer's Too Hot for TV on the WWE Network, specifically episode number 6, which is titled Bloopers and Blunders. So enjoy that, and I'll catch you next time. This is the stupidest one of them all. No, it's not. I'm this a is CEO a... of a Fortune 500 company. So that's okay. And you want me to chase a this freaking is how, chicken. This is how you used to do it. This is uh, how you build speed. You will be Austin. You'll be faster than Austin. You need greasy, fast speed. You need to be grease lightning. Grease right lightning. Go. Catch that chicken. That's it. After that chicken. Get that chicken. Get the chicken. That's how you saw it on the air. But that wasn't exactly how it all went down. You need greasy, fast speed. You need to be grease lightning. Grease right lightning. Catch that chicken. That's it. After that chicken. Beautiful. Beautiful. Get the chicken. The chicken's dead. Okay, how's the chicken? The yeah. chicken. Get going. Hey. The hey. chicken's cold. Here we go. Yeah, baby. Get the chicken. Get the chicken. That's it. Get the chicken. Drop the elbow. Drop the elbow. What's the with the chicken? It's a working chicken. The chicken's like Austin. He's afraid of me. You're gonna choke him? Don't choke the chicken.